0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you d- and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died.
1: Um, That we're kicking off today. It's the 40 days. I mentioned this at the beginning of the service. The 40 days leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays, and therefore it starts on Ash Wednesday. It is a season in the church calendar where people take on habits and disciplines in order to reorient and reshape their hearts and lives Godward. If you come from a non-Lent liturgical background tradition, which many of you come from, um, let me like, kind of protect you a little bit, make you take away your fears. If you took on a Lenten discipline, it would not make you a Catholic. You would still just be you. And if you're Catholic in your background and this Lent you didn't give up meat, you're not going to be a bad Catholic. You're still you. They are opportunities instead to step in during a particular season to orient us towards God. And sometimes those seasons of life, which, you know, we actually live in seasons all of our lives. It, the, our calendar is a Roman calendar, a Roman political calendar. And so many of you start all of your disciplines on January 1, like a good Roman. I don't know, right? And then, and then many of us are guided by the, the school calendar. And so summer is a particular season. And in the fall, we start stuff because the kids finally go back to school. So the church calendar, which began in the Middle Ages, really does create rhythms of repentance during Lent, anticipation during Advent, rejoicing in the resurrection during the season of Easter. And if you take advantage of them, they're a way to counter, if you would, your financial calendar, the political calendar, the school calendar, with rhythms of life that enable you to seek God in unique ways during those seasons. You don't have to do them, but we already do it in other ways in life. The the journey of Lent is a journey to the cross. It is marked by Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. In the Gospel of Mark, actually, you get right to the middle of Mark, and it says, and Jesus set his eyes to Jerusalem. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, the whole second half of, of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus going to Jerusalem, going to the cross. And so during the season of Lent, we kind of reenact that in our thoughts and prayers. And the focus is, therefore, on the death of Christ, We acknowledge our mortality and sinfulness, the need of the cross, and yet we look to his grace, to the grace of the cross, and what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. In order to let something like a season focusing on the cross have its full weight, we need to understand what Christ did for us on the cross, which basically means we need to understand who Christ is. We need to know who Jesus is, which is why this sermon series, Is an understanding of who Jesus is. We're doing a series in the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven different I Am statements where Jesus talks about being the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life. We're doing this series with Dean Miller's church, Church of the Ascension. And the intention of it is to understand the nature of Jesus. Beneath all of these I Am statements and all of the weightiness of them is a full understanding of who God is in the Hebrew Bible. Right? When, when God revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And after decades and centuries of calling out, God raises up Moses, and Moses sees in the wilderness, he's out in the wilderness and sees a burning bush and goes to it, and it's the Lord God who calls him to go and set the people free. And Moses says, people don't know you. What's your name, dude? And he says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you the one who was and is and is to be. I am. It's transliterated as Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. And it's the full weightiness of God, so holy and so grand that the Jewish people in Jesus' day and later would not utter it for fear of blasphemy. But Jesus uses the phrase pretty liberally, of himself. We go to these I am statements to understand who Jesus is, what he's claiming to be. But it's also helpful for us when we think about the aim of Christian discipleship, of being a Christian at all. The aim of a Christian discipleship is not just church membership or learning how to pray better or becoming a nicer person. Those might, you know, be there as well, whatever. Um, It's actually in Romans 8. It says, to be conformed to the image of his son. Did you know God's purpose for you is to look like Christ? doesn't mean you have a beard. It means you look like Jesus in the fullness of who he is. God's purpose is that we are conformed to the image of Christ. When somebody sees us, they see Christ. So this series, we're asking this question. I want you to ask this question with me. Who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be? What do the I am statements say about him? And what do they mean for my faith and my life and being conformed to the image of Christ? One of my favorite authors, James K.A. Smith, wrote a book a couple years ago that I love called You Are What You Love. Okay, you are what you love. The argument that he makes in the book is that you and I are shaped by, we become like whatever we love most. So, this Lent, with me as we do this series, I want you with me to look to Jesus. Spend time seeking Jesus. In your prayer time, talk with and listen to Jesus. Learn to love Jesus and become more like him. Let me pray for us as we enter not just this morning, but this series. Lord, in this season of Lent, as we point towards the cross on Good Friday, I pray that you would help us to see your son afresh. Many of us have grown up in the church for years and seen and heard it all. Give us fresh eyes to see and taste the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And for any in here who are newer or struggling or trying to figure it out, and I pray that you would reveal your son to us. Give us eyes to see who he is and who you are calling us to be. Amen. So the central claim that we're looking at today is found in verse 35 when Jesus says to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a lot of stuff that's behind this, a lot of stuff that's underneath of it and that Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the bread of life. He has just fed the 5,000. In their minds are manna, in the in the Exodus wanderings, and Jesus is here saying, I am the bread, the source of life. Come to me and you'll never hunger. Believe in me and you will never thirst. That in and of itself is a pretty profound statement if we just pick it apart, but sometimes Jesus pushes things a little too far. Later on in a section that we didn't read, it's literally just a couple of verses after what we read, Jesus goes on to say in verse 53 and on, You know, most Christians try to quickly dismiss these sort of statements. If you come from a Baptist or Bible church, you just kind of quickly go to the metaphoric. If you come from a Catholic or liturgical, it's obviously pointing to communion. And what I would say is don't be quick to dismiss the words that are challenging, the phrases we don't fully grasp. Sometimes there is mystery, intentionally so, in Scripture, where God is revealing himself in a way that is both challenging and profound. And you may not have a quick answer, and that's okay. But keep pressing into it. Let the word sit. Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You want to have life? Here, in me. And the people who heard it in the synagogue that day, it says in verse 41, they grumbled about him. (laughs) They grumbled about him because he said, I am bread from heaven. Several times in this passage throughout it, the people are grumbling. The people in the synagogue are grumbling. The Jewish leadership are grumbling. The crowds are grumbling. The disciples are grumbling at Jesus and the things he's saying. And you have to understand that word grumble is a Hebraism that has nothing to do with when you tell your kids something and they walk away grumbling, right? That's them just being angry at you, right? And you say, "Come, what did you say to me? What did you say? Grumbling was actually almost a technical term in the Old Testament. Throughout the story of the Exodus, when Israel is wandering, they're constantly, bes- they're, they're constantly said to have grumbled against Moses or against the Lord uh, himself, And what's interesting in the the story of water from the rock, which I'm not going to go deeply into, in the book of Exodus, the people grumble, but it's actually more like a formal accusation. So what happens is Israel is brought out of Egypt. They part the seas. They get to the other side. They're in the wilderness. Then they're starving. They cry out to God. He provides manna, manna and quail, bread and meat in the wilderness. And then and then a couple of days later, a week later, whatever it is, they get to a place where there's no water and to have no water in the wilderness, in the desert with thousands of people is certain death within a couple of days. And so they grumble against Moses and Moses goes to God and says, they are grumbling against me. What should I do? They're saying, why did you take us out of Egypt to kill us? And God says, they're not grumbling against you. They're grumbling against me. The whole scene, if you actually read through it and have somebody piece through it, is actually a courtroom drama. Israel is not grumbling like a kid walking away. They're actually bringing formal accusations, charges against Moses and against the Lord. The way of grumbling is actually to lay charges down. They're accusing Moses and the Lord of malpractice and attempted murder. In the synagogue that day, a semi-trial is being put. They're bringing accusations against Jesus. Who does he think he is? The context, of course, is the feeding of the 5,000, which has just happened a day before. And the feeding of the 5,000, we talked about it actually just like three weeks ago if you were here. It was one of these dramatic miracles that Jesus does, recorded in every gospel, where Jesus is declaring himself to be something that nobody had ever thought he could be until he does it, and then they're like, oh, we now get who he is. And so the backdrop, when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, is in the first century, Jesus' day, in that first century Jewish political imagination, they were desperate for a new exodus, The story of Exodus in the Old Testament, it cannot be overstated how significant it was as a forming idea for Jewish identity and all of their hopes. It was when God brought them out of Egypt in slavery and delivered them to the promised land And he established them as his people, establishing his covenant with them. It's the birth of their nation. It's when they were set free. It's all that they point to. And whenever they were in times of trouble, they went back to the story of the Exodus. They said, God will one day provide a deliverer and will bring us out again. And here they are in the first century, longing for that, longing for God to bring a deliverer and to deliver them once again. And Jesus, earlier in chapter 6 of John, is in the wilderness With 5,000 Israelites, healing people, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, and then feeding the 5,000. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, every messianic movement in the centuries around Jesus began in the wilderness with a charismatic figure gathering a bunch of people trying to reconstitute Israel around themselves. Jesus is doing just that, and he provides a miracle of bread and meat in the wilderness. What he does in feeding the 5,000 is not just a nice thing for some hungry people. It is a highly political, subversive act with incredible theological implications. The crowds that day in the feeding of the 5,000, they're like, this guy heals people, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, we're out here in the wilderness, and now he's providing, well, essentially manna, bread from nowhere. And so in verse 14 of John chapter 6, we read, when the people saw the sign, the feeding of the 5,000, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they came to take him by force and make him king. The prophet is Deuteronomy 18. Moses, a prophet like Moses, will come and deliver Israel. They wanted to make him the Messiah, the king, right then. They knew God was doing something in this Jesus. And they were ready for him to be king and deliver them from all their enemies. Jesus, knowing they wanted to make him king, escapes, sends the disciples on a boat. He walks on water that night, as one does. And then the next day, they end up in Capernaum. And a crowd gathers around as soon as they see Jesus there, and they say, Basically, because they were there out in the wilderness, they say, so are you the new Moses? Are you the Messiah? If so, give us a sign. How about actual manna? And Jesus, once again, not being pushed around by them, says, look, that's not the thing I've come to do. Rather, I've come to give you myself. And he says it very plainly, multiple times. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Don't look for manna, the thing that, you know, collects on the ground in the morning. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Don't look for bread from me, a miracle. Look to me. I am the bread. My flesh is the bread. Jesus is kind of doing a mix of things here where he's saying, you need all of me. You need me physically here, not just spiritually. You need me spiritually. You need my very soul and self for you. You need all full total of me to be present. And you need everything I'm going to give you. Eat this bread, not that bread, not manna, not the bread that we had yesterday in the wilderness, the barley loaves. Eat this bread. And he gives some explanation of that when he says, this is how you eat this bread. You believe in me. And I think that's more than intellectual assent, right? You know, when you eat something, it becomes part of you in, in that sort of semi-biological way that I don't want to try to explain because I don't understand science. Um, but if you eat something, it, it has a transforming effect on you. If all you eat is Skittles, it will have a transforming effect on you. If, if you're sick, and you eat medicine, it has a transforming effect on you. Jesus is saying, take me in in a way that has a transforming effect on you. And then you will live forever. Then I will raise you up on the last day. And of course, everything that Jesus says is actually said, we read this in the passage later on, that it's said in the synagogue on a Saturday, on the Sabbath day, as Jesus is teaching and interacting with them as they're accusing him, if you would, in the synagogue, and these are faithful Jewish men who are there, and they are horribly offended by everything that he says. Don't look for manna, Jesus says, I am the true manna. Manna back in Exodus was pointing ahead to me. And in fact, I am the manna giver, the source of life itself. Do you want life? You need me. Bread was a metonymy for your your biological and physical life for the source of life itself. Kind of like, actually, we've used bread, not this century, but last century, bread was used as a metonymy for money. Like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of dough, a lot of bread, right? In the Hebrew world and the Greek world, bread was a metonymy for life and the source of life itself. And I think Jesus is playing on this in many ways, saying, you need me. I am the source of life itself. Man does not live by bread alone alone. But by every word that comes from me, he's putting himself on par with the I am, Yahweh himself. Jesus is saying, come to me, believe in me, and you will find life. I am the source of life. I am what you need. And that's why he warns in verse 27 earlier in our passage, do not work for food that perishes. But for food that endures to eternal, but for that which endures to eternal life. You know, I, again, going back to the whole Lenten thing, some of you who have grown up in traditions that did Lent would fast during Lent. And fasting is refraining from eating during a certain period, whether that's a day or a meal or a certain thing. In many Catholic traditions, you would give up meat during Lent, except fish on Fridays, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but why do you do that? Like historically, why do you do that? It's not to lose weight. Okay, so you don't do the Lenten tradition because it's like you'll look better at the end of the 40 days. You do it as a way to give up something that's important or natural to you, to reorient you towards God. So during that lunch period when you're giving up lunch, you're seeking God in prayer and in Scripture. You're seeking God in listening to him. You're seeking God in going to worship. It's something that's important and core to you. And it's why some people actually now will give up things in Lent um, that are like their alternative sources of bread, if you would. Like people will give up alcohol or Netflix because they realize that they've come to rely on those as an escape. Or they give up social media because you have that deep desire for approval and likes and popularity and you recognize just 40 days away might be good for me, might be good for my soul reorienting me towards God. And the question of Lent, which is Jesus' question for those listening to him to that, that day, is what food are you working for? What bread are you working for? Jesus tries to reorient it around himself and he says, I am the bread, the bread of life. Come to me and you will not hunger. Believe in me and you will not thirst. Hunger and thirst are scriptural metaphors for something far deeper than just food and drink, Right? The words that are used are often our needs and our wants. To hunger for something is to eagerly desire something in the way that the Old Testament looked at it. And to thirst, as the psalmist talks about, is the longing of your soul. My soul thirsts for you, God, more than a deer for water. The longing of our soul, the desire of our heart. Do you want the desires of your heart, the longings of your soul to be filled? Jesus says, come to me. Believe in me. And underneath that, he's asking, what is your bread? What do you hunger for? What do you try to fill your soul with? What do you say, if I have that, I'm okay. If I get there, I'll be full. I'll be satisfied. I'll be happy. Success, Comfort, money, recognition? You know, as I was thinking about it this week, I recognized a newer one in me, which if you take some time to do this sort of like, what is it that I'm kind of turning to? It's a really helpful exercise, a lot of fun. Um, But what I found in my own thoughts was independence is such a primary source of life for me, especially as I've gotten older. I want to be independent of anybody else's expectations, freed up, this weekend, this weekend, I had a, like a, two days where my sons were gone at the breakaway trip, and Sarah went away with some friends, and nobody was home. And I loved it. I even thought about locking the dog outside, but then he would bark, and eventually I'd have to let him in. I, I wanted to be independent of him. Just leave me alone. It's glorious. What is that? That need and that will feed me. If I have independence, that'll, that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be full, right? You know, one that everyone, regardless of the other ones that we turn towards, one that every human being is desperately hungry for is love. And you, you see it play out in each of our lives in different ways. That, that hunger for love plays itself out and your, your need for approval from your parents it starts when you're young and even as you get older, you just desperate need to be approved of. The, the, the need to be seen as attractive or desirable, even if you don't really want the full attention of the other person, you just want them to think you're attractive. Some of us turn to romance or sex. Like then, if I have that, if I had that sort of relationship, if I had that sort of, then I'd be happy. We're just wanting to be liked, invited, to be in. We want acceptance, Right? All of it is a hunger for love. But as most of us know, even if we won't acknowledge it, no spouse or child or friend can bear the weight of our need for love. And we cannot even give the type of love that we want others to give us. I was reading a couple of weeks ago in this book um, that was a commentary on the Gospel of Mark and it was pointing back to a now out-of-date study that was done on love and basically the author made this argument. The author made the argument that everyone can tell the difference. Everyone can tell the difference between fake love and authentic love. Children, adults, even people who have not experienced authentic love can tell. Even if you've been deprived of good love, you can tell the difference between fake and authentic love. False or fake love is that we use people for our own happiness. Fake love, false love is conditional. We give love to others if our needs are being met and if they're not, we pull back, right? And that's why in many ways, it's a non-vulnerable sort of love. You hold back some of yourself to protect yourself and then it's easier to get out if you have to cut ties with that person. True or authentic love is generous. It's giving of yourself sacrificially for the benefit and joy of the other person, not for what you can get out of it. And in that sense, it is unconditional, unconditional, and radically vulnerable. You're holding nothing back. And the deeper problem still (laughs) is that we desperately want true love, authentic love but we cannot even give it to other people. I mean, you can give it sometimes, right? For a a time, for a limit. You can give it sometimes, but not fully, not unconditionally, not continuously, not always, not to everyone. And so what we end up being, if you were going to be kind of looking at it at, at its worst set of eyes, is that we are mercenary and capitalistic with our love. We will give love where we're going to get a good return on investment. If you begin to trust somebody, you give a little bit more, right? That's what we do. And that that makes sense. It's smart. (laughs) We'll be generous and vulnerable if we know we're going to be loved back. Nobody can give the kind or amount of love that we are starving for. We are hungry and searching for deep, authentic, unconditional love and yet we are incapable of giving it in the amount or the depth that others need, that we need ourselves. We need someone who can love us, right? Who, who doesn't need something from us. Someone who can love us radically, generously, unconditionally, always. That's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am your source of life. Come to me and you won't hunger. Believe in me, you will not thirst. Jesus is saying, you need the love that I am offering in myself and that I'm about to offer myself in my death on the cross for you. My blood broken, my body broken, my blood poured out. You need me more than bread, more than water, more than success more than independence, more than control. You need me more than life itself. And you know, to the extent that we, we know that we are loved by Jesus to that extent, that to know that we are forgiven and worthy and accepted, to the extent that we know that we're loved by Jesus, to that extent we will be full, satisfied, and actually able to love others as Jesus loved us. Jesus is claiming that he is the bread that we need. At the end of the communion uh, service, when we do this, right before we give out the bread, I say the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Do you know, if you feed on Jesus in this way, you will actually still be hungry. Like, After church today, you go out there, have some coffee, you've been friendly for 30 minutes, it's 12 noon, and somebody says, let's go get cheeseburger and fries, you're going to want the cheeseburger and fries. Feeding on Christ is not going to take away your hunger. It's also not going to take away your your desire for success or looking to romance or the need for approval but feeding on Christ by faith will make them less ultimate in your life and therefore less controlling. You know, Jesus is the only food that fills you and also frees you, satisfying your soul completely. Anything else we turn to, anything else we turn to, things that we turn to to fill our soul, just like any addiction, (laughs) they will make us hungrier and leave us emptier. And we need more and more, and we're less and less satisfied. So this Lent, seek Jesus. Come to him again and again and again. Renew your trust in him. Get to know him. Feed on him. Seek him in such a way that you begin to understand him and know him more and more. And knowing him more, you grow deeper in love with him. Because the more you find out how much you are loved and the more you love him, the more you'll be changed. And you see that he loves you generously, unconditionally, vulnerably, continuously, always. Let's pray. Lord God, we are very hungry people. We are after so many different things, driven, pursuing, seeking, perfection, achievement, happiness, control, love. In Jesus, you offer us the ultimate soul food, what our lives need, what our hearts need. Give us eyes to see you and faith to feed on you. A willingness to come to you again and again, trusting in your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.